maybe Philip Kitcher turned an outline of Lewis's into a paper, maybe. But there's this paper on divine evil, and it's it, uh, I took it to be just the, this, this argument um, from hell, saying that you know if God were to, <laughs> that, you could interpret that in two ways: an argument from hell. <laughs> oh, that's the argument from hell. <laughs> the worst that's ever encountered it's from hell. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I really love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Uh, on this podcast, I have experts on to share their wisdom in those different fields, philosophy, theology, nature, and life, and uh, today is uh, no different. I have with me Dr. Dean Zimmerman. He is a professor of philosophy in the Rutgers uh, University Philosophy Department, and he's the uh, co-director of the Rutgers Center of Philosophy of Religion with Brian Leftow. I'm really excited for this one because we're going to be talking about David Lewis and uh, Dr. Zimmerman's relationship with him and to him. Uh, we're also going to be talking about David Lewis's mm, conception of God and uh, divine evil. And then uh, we'll be thinking about um, a theistic conception of modal realism following David Lewis as well. Uh, Lewis's possible worlds and and maybe we'll get into some planning and stuff as well. It's going to be really fun. I'm really excited for it. Before we hop in though, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this podcast happen. You guys are awesome. I, I seriously appreciate it. This is something that I want to do full time. Uh, I would love to be able to fly out to Rutgers today and, and talk with uh, Dean in person. Um, so if you guys like this podcast, if it's your top five, top 10, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can join for as little as $3 a month and, uh, starting at $5 a month, you get early access to episodes. So you get to see them and hear them before everyone else. And we're just coming out with a bunch of new stuff. You can join the Facebook group. That's for free. Uh, if you're a, a listener, Parker's Pensies Ponciers, um, and there's a lot of great discussions happening there. I think we're going to be starting a discord server. You can find us uh, on. You can find me on Twitter. You can find another community on Reddit. We're all over the place. We're we're tracing down, tracking down the socials. Um, so if you like this podcast, you can support financially. You can join all these groups, and you can leave a five star review on Apple Podcasts. All right. Uh, so without further ado, let's jump in and let's talk all things David Lewis and um, and Dean Zimmerman. I'm really excited for it. <clears throat> uh, Dr. Zimmerman, Dean, thanks thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is awesome. I, um, you're a very busy man, and um, I, I really appreciate you making some time here to talk about this. Um, before we jump into Lewis stuff, uh, I was curious, how did you get into philosophy in the first place? Um, I suppose it was um, in high school, reading... Um, well, it's it's an old, old story, at least for people of my... Uh, generation okay um you you were were raised in some kind of evangelical or in my case pentecostal kind of kind of background um at some point you uh w w discovered c.s lewis and francis schaefer <laughs> that's right <laughs> and uh i was i was sitting around a table at wheaton uh at a uh some conference back in the early 90s maybe it was it was probably 91 or 2 and uh we were uh, well maybe it was a little later than that because i feel like andrew chignell was there mm. and 
maybe Tim O'Connor. And, you know, it was, it was people from, I guess Andrew's a little younger than me, hmm. but um, uh, a table full of people about my age, all of whom okay. are now philosophy professors uh, yeah. or were then in fact. Um, and you just went around, you know, what got, you know, what sort of opened your mind to studying philosophy, Francis Schaeffer, Francis Schaeffer, Francis. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and also kind of, kind of, odd and a little ironic because he you know uh, in, in, in some ways Schaefer uh, wasn't a great philosopher that's what I hear <laughs> yeah. right right you well, look at, he's got no footnotes ever yeah no no and he's he uh, and and he tended to give you you know very uh, you know he gave you potted versions yeah. of of different positions and um but uh, that said, um, he was obviously an important figure mm -hmm. because he was he was somehow, um, you know, respectable to read. Yeah, uh, it was okay. <laughs> um, and somehow C.S. Lewis too. He he got to be okay, yeah. um, um, and yet he interacted with uh you know currents in philosophy going way back and yeah. but also up to what he was thinking of as the present day like existentialism you know right. um uh and he sort of gave us license to to uh think about these things and read these authors ourselves mm -hmm. um so i i think he played a huge role in um kind of opening up the you know the kind of evangelical mind to the extent that it did open up yeah um the people you know there's mark knoll's uh famous book about the scandal of the american mind and right. did he write a follow-up like the closing of the american mind yeah yeah, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. Or evangelical mind or something like that um this yeah um but uh so you know maybe it didn't uh it didn't, he didn't change um, uh, evangelicalism and make it suddenly intellectual. Yeah. But uh, people who uh, grew up in the kind of environment that I grew up in, um, uh, he was important because he, he introduced us to some figures. Yeah. Uh, and, and also Malcolm Muggeridge. I, I read Malcolm okay. Muggeridge as a kid somehow. Um and and Walker Percy's little book Lo uh, Lost in the Cosmos. Hmm. I read that right when it came out, and that's a weird little book with quite a bit of philosophy in it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, okay. Um, uh, is Mugridge a rumor of angels? Is that is that him? That doesn't sound right. Okay. Okay. Um, he he was um, he was a journalist, right? And a television journalist mm -hmm. in Britain. Um, uh, he, he was a spy of some kind in World War II in Africa. Wow. Okay. Um, and uh, he wrote a really good memoir. Um, what's it? What's it called? Shoot, I can't. Think <laughs> no, of it. uh, it's no a two-volume two-volume memoir. And then he wrote kind of the same books over and over and over again for <laughs> okay for a, a, a number of years. Okay. But. Um, but he wrote a cute little book um, 
that just focused on like people who were really important to him spiritually. And if I remember right, it was Simone Weil, Tolstoy. I think Pascal was in there. Um, Anyway, a number of them were philosophers and they were just a single chapter uh, and, and enough to inspire me to try to read these people myself. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, when you were, when you were, um, I guess, what was your relationship to, to Wheaton college? Were you just there for like a conference or did you, did you, okay. Did you ever bump into like Arthur Holmes at all? Yeah, I did. Wonderful guy. Yeah. Um, And, and, you know, I think he played the same kind of uh, Francis Schaeffery role for a lot of people, but, but he was uh, a much, much better philosopher. (laughs) I mean, Francis Schaeffer was a theologian, you know, he was a theologian and and an apologist and a big thinker, but Art Art Holmes was a a real philosopher and uh, wrote some excellent books. I read one of uh, his books when I was in high school, I think, or maybe it was the beginning of college. All truth is God's truth. Yeah, of course. That was, I love uh, that book. Yeah, that was that was uh kind of eye-opening. Yeah. Um so uh, yeah, he was he was a uh part of a summer school that I went to th- there for younger younger professors or or um um advanced graduate students uh that Al Plantinga led okay. in 19 19- 89 maybe okay something like that that sounds awesome uh and it was 88 maybe actually uh it was it was terrific yeah and yeah and art homes was great and that circle of people some of them have remained my friends uh to this day Man. including yeah. tom senor tom senor was there oh, okay yeah wow um so so i i started getting into philosophy my senior year of college and uh, one of my friends was studying philosophy at Northern Illinois. I went there to wrestle only, but ended up learning some philosophy. My friend put me on to uh, this series by Art Holmes that's on uh, YouTube. It's like 89 of his lectures. So it's like like 89 hours worth of philosophy lectures. So I would like skip class and just be watching Art Holmes. So in in a major way, he was like the intro to philosophy for me. I really liked that guy. Well, that was, that was, that's a good place to, uh, to start. And, and he, uh, had such a good grasp of the history of philosophy. Yeah, you know, and not just one era. I mean, that's that's something that that uh, uh, you know, people like myself, um, you know, we get specialized pretty early, and there's big gaps in our knowledge mm-hmm. of the history of philosophy. And you know, I'm always discovering these pockets of of uh, really interesting stuff that I didn't know anything about. Yeah, well, so I'm I'm going the the reverse way where I I you know 89 hours or whatever of his history of philosophy. And now I'm realizing I I need to learn how to argue better. I need to do some of this. I need to specialize a little bit more. So uh, working on remedying that. Um, before uh, I want to get to Lewis, you you have so many awesome acquaintances, so many cool stories too. I I just wanted to ask a little bit about Chisholm, um, because you you studied with him, right? Sure. Yeah, he was uh, he was my advisor. Um, I met him the first time in the summer of 1986. Um, I I just visited Brown uh, when I was with my parents in Connecticut to, to see my uh, uh, aunt and uncle. And um, 
so we stopped at Brown and he just happened to be there. I, I, I had a meeting with Ernie Souza and, and, uh, uh, Chisholm just happened to, to be there. So I, I got to meet him and, uh, uh, eventually decided, you know, the next year went to grad school there. Yeah. And, uh, well, who we didn't, I, I think the story that I've heard was that like, were, were you studying with Quine and you left Quine to be with Chisholm or did no. you leave someone to be with Chisholm? No, I went to Brown, uh, to work with, uh, with Chisholm. Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's start. Nice. I, I only ever like, I bumped into Quine at a, uh, on an escalator <laughs> at, <laughs> okay. at an APA meeting in the eighties. Um, nice. and I went to a couple of talks he gave, but, um, uh, that's the closest I got to. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, uh so, so what'd you do? What'd you um, end up writing your dissertation on uh, under Chisholm there? Myriological um, essentialism. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Is that a view you still like? Do you, do you hold that or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I do. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, your, your, um, it's, your. It's a good, it's a good tough view, you know. It, it is. Yeah. Hard, I, yeah. Kind it, of, it's kind of hardcore. It's hardcore. So um, hardcore and tough. Are, are are words that um the, the youngsters now are calling based it's a based view it's kind of like uh <laughs> the gen zers are making up all sorts of language i'm trying to trying to keep up with them um yeah yeah so that's fantastic your your breath your breadth of work is uh is so vast that um we could get sucked into all sorts of different areas where you specialize but um i, I want to talk uh about david lewis because that's kind of how how our our um our relationship, our interaction is, has sparked up. So, so Barry Lamb had this podcast uh, on uh, Hi-Fi Nation. It's a great podcast. Barry's been on on my podcast, yeah, and he did terrific. like a yeah, yeah, it's, it's really, really great. And he did like a sub series called Man of Many Worlds pod, um, uh, short mini series on David Lewis, and really, really excellent podcast. And, and you said that uh, to me as well. Um, but he mentioned this kind of like beef, this kind of uh, disagreement uh, and animosity that Lewis might have had with with Christians uh, of his time, his his Christian peers. And you were just uh, mentioning in a in a group like not not so much, maybe not not quite uh, the story, even though that might be the popular story. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in a way, Lewis. So I, I went to Brown because. I really liked Chisholm's work. I'd been studying his work in epistemology and mm. read some of his metaphysics. And I thought, I like this. I really yeah. like it. I mean, I think this, you know, this seems right. <laughs> um, and uh, um, so that was, you know, that was very smooth sailing. And Jaguan Kim was there and Jim Van Cleve and Ernie Sosa and, and just all wonderful teachers. And I just, clicked with all of them very much but then um we grad students had a reading group uh with jim van cleave um Mm -hmm. um and we where we read on the plurality of worlds by david lewis which had had just come out and um and i i read the thing and i thought this is this is the most ridiculous thing i've ever read the old incredulous stare Yeah. yeah i just i i I couldn't now, you know, I'd read papers by David Lewis mm-hmm. um, in as an undergrad. I'd read some something of his on functionalism, okay. I suppose, um, uh, or, you know, some kind of identity theory, uh, pa- one of his earlier papers. Um, uh, and then I'd read some some other stuff in grad school. But 
uh, you know, just philosophy of mind. Mm -hmm. And so I just had not encountered the actual, you know, uh, modal metaphysics until I read that book. And, um, you know, I did not, I guess I'd read stuff in Lux's anthology um, about modality, what, whatever that anthology is called, you know, mm -hmm. possible, what is it? Possible worlds. It's, I can see it up on my, the, the possible and the actual nice. Michael, Michael Lux. Okay. Um, that was a classic um, uh, collection of papers on uh, modality, which everybody had to study back in the seventies and eighties, you know, mm -hmm. you read everything in that anthology and I just, you know, I read the stuff on counterpart theory in there and so on. And I really didn't, it didn't dawn on me that he was serious about, about uh, other worlds until I read on the plurality of worlds. And I, uh, I didn't fully appreciate the book. I have to say, yeah, uh, it didn't really, you know, uh, the significance of the program uh, didn't really sink in mm -hmm. uh, kind of the breadth of the vision and the way in which his picture of the space of possible worlds and how they work, um, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of connected up with all these other uh, areas where he's made significant contributions, philosophical yeah. contributions. And it, it, it makes it this entire, you know, it's this whole system. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, Chisholm's the kind of guy who says, you know, the book, the one book of philosophy that has the most truth in it is, uh, reads, uh, collected works. Just take a, take that. Yeah. Comment, right. <laughs> uh, so somebody, somebody asked some, uh, uh, distinguished alum, uh, uh, alum of, uh, Brown asked him, the question what's the book with the most uh the philosophy book with the most truths in it <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the one he came up with okay um, uh so you know this uh, although lewis would think of himself as preserving all the things we ordinarily say you know yeah. kind of ordinary beliefs um he w was willing to accept a very uh uh rich and kind of shocking uh ontology to yeah. do it uh something that you know uh, a real common sense person like reed would not have uh yeah but but lewis's whole thing was like it, it was um the explanatory power that it had right so he, yeah. he could say within quine's uh you know, uh, naturalized, uh, picture where he's, he's making modal claims, uh, non-modal because, uh, you're grounding them in the concrete things. Uh, but he, I, I never really thought about that too recently that he was still following Quine in, uh, in having this naturalized picture. He's naturalizing modality. I mean, in some ways he was like Quine, um, but in other ways, very much not. Okay. So, um, so when it comes to modality, kind of the suspicion of modal notions and the idea that they need to be reduced mm -hmm. in, into some language that's not, um, doesn't have boxes and diamonds. Um, <laughs> uh, that idea is certainly there. 
his attitude towards de re modality and essences mm-hmm. is similar in some ways. It's kind of deflationary. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, Quine thinks it's just not legitimate talk. Um, it's too messy. Um, he has the example of the, of the, you know, a bicyclist is essentially a, a biped. But Jones, the bicyclist, is not essentially a biped. Could right. could undergo some accident, and um, Quine just thinks, you know, all of our all of our talk about, you know, what's essential to somebody or, or a thing, um, and what's not, is undisciplined in this kind of kind of way. You think about it one way, it seems essential. You think about it another way, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see. Uh, the spirit of that being preserved in counterpart theory mm-hmm. where it's very, it, it, it's uh, contextually flexible um, uh, whether something counts as a counterpart of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think about me as an, as a, as an organism. Um, I couldn't survive teletransportation. If you think of me as a, you know, m- consciously continuing kind of mental entity. Um, even if I'm a physical object that, uh, I still can survive teletransportation because, um, thinking of me that way, there's possible worlds where a counterpart of me, um, uh, makes the jump. Yeah. Uh, still survives. so, yeah. you know, so, so you have that aspect of Quine, um, um, but you actually have a positive proposal for making sense of that kind of talk. Yeah. You know, so, so Quine thinks it's all too, um, we should just throw it out. Yeah. Um, but uh, Lewis uh, maintains the flexibility, uh, doesn't take essences that uh, seriously. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, but uh, we're able to talk about essences and, and what's necessary and, so on. Uh, but the, the way in which he's really unlike Quine, I think, is, um, you know, Quine is sort of a, uh, a behaviorist about, about a lot, yeah. you know, and he's a behaviorist about language. Um, and uh, uh, David Lewis takes uh, language really seriously and you know, we need theories of it that uh, take account of meanings and that, um, um, you know, we, we need to, you know, our, uh, the, the language that we are trying to make precise and that we think is going to be used to state the real truth about things. Yeah. It better be able to state the real truth about, about language and meaning and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, intentionality where Quine basically lets all that stuff go. Okay. It's my, I mean, that's my interpretation of what he's doing in like word and object. Yeah. Um, that sounds right. Yeah. Well, so um, you've, you've met a lot of these uh, giants of the, of the last century. Um, can you fill us in on like your, your uh, interaction with, with Lewis? Yeah. So, you know, in a, in a way, um, you know, as, as Chisholm became uh uh, less able to do philosophy after I moved to Notre Dame. Um, that, that was my first job 
mm-hmm. after grad school. He became sick. He had um, he had um, he had cancer. He had to have surgery. He he was weak, and his eyesight was failing. And you know, just everything was going downhill. Yeah. It was very sad. Um, I I did get to visit him a couple of times. Uh, go back and. You know, but but by then he was in the nursing home and okay. and uh, not doing well at all. Um, and um, um, you know, meanwhile, my reading of Lewis had increased, and I finally got a chance to interact with him um, at Notre Dame, and then at uh, quite a few other and quite a few other occasions and contexts in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and boy, I, I, you know, I took a completely different attitude towards on the plurality of worlds. Hmm. You know, I started to see the, the kind of beauty of it, uh, even though, you know, I still think it's, uh, a, uh, you know, it, it's, a uh, a bizarre, metaphysics that i could never kind of get myself into a frame of mind to to believe it yeah um it has this kind of of beauty to it like leibniz or um Hmm. or barclay or um um or russell's um metaphysics in our knowledge of the external world where Hmm. he builds he builds up um physical objects and minds from the same stuff. And and he's got these spheres of, of uh, phenomenal experiences. Um, And some of those are ones that we experience. Some are not And Those other things are points of space. Yeah. Um, Is that where the, is that where he develops the, what's come to be known as Brasselian panpsychism? That's yep. That's a, that's one of one version of that. Okay. View he, you know, I think he changes his views quite a bit. Yeah, but right but, but that that one is that's my favorite, you know. Okay. And it's it's also wild, and there's like it's like deeply unbelievable. Mm. Um, but um, but it has the same sort of uh, attractiveness to me as as um, as uh, as Lewis's picture but lewis's picture does so much more you know i mean it's yeah. he, he's uh, it, it's connected to uh his ability to explain what's going on uh with you know minds matter intentionality language modal talk of all kinds and yeah um uh causation and you know uh laws of nature etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it's it lots of his projects would be hard to fully carry out without this metaphysics. Mm. Yeah. Um, lots of what he did philosophically is independent of it. You know, yeah. it's, it, you can, uh, you can uh, appreciate what uh, you can appreciate the theory. You can even make use of it without all the worlds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's I, probably I it's it, stuff on time travel, right? Like you don't, you don't need right. the, plurality of worlds for that kind of stuff right yeah um and i'm i guess i'm guessing your listeners uh are are familiar with uh 
David Lewis and Modality and Possible Worlds. So we're just taking that. Yeah, for yeah. yeah. Most most of them will be just really quick. Maybe um, if if you're not, you can go listen to the episode with Barry Lamb because we talked about um, that was our whole conversation. But if you're if you're not familiar, there's uh, these there's these discrete uh, uh, universes, and you can't interact with them. But uh, yeah, there are there are possible worlds, and they're actually concrete worlds. They're not abstract, and so. Right now, there's a world where, um, literally, where my counterpart—it's not actually me, but someone who's uh, very close to me—doesn't uh, have a mustache, but is talking with that counterpart version of Dean Zimmerman uh, on their podcast uh, in their in their world. Um, but but I can never reach them. It's not like um, it's not like the Marvel series where you can trans transport yourself or trans you can you know uh, find a black hole and get into another universe. They're they're. Uh, discreet you can't get to them yeah yeah and and you know you might wonder okay yeah that's a crazy idea why is that important um why isn't that just science fiction mm-hmm. um but it, it it's it's not because um it is part of a theory that um is um very similar to um, you know, extremely popular and essentially, you know, necessary for metaphysics uh, uh, theories about modality. Yeah. So, you know, if you if you're thinking about modality, that is um, necessity and possibility, um, and related ideas like counterfactuals. You know, mm-hmm. if so and so would have happened, this would have happened. Um, if you're thinking about those notions, which are just core to metaphysics. You end up thinking about possible worlds, right? Um, and even if you, you know, um, even if you don't think modality is really about possible worlds, you still end up with possible worlds, right? You know, if modality is just about propositions and whether they're necessary or, or, uh, uh, or, or merely possible or um, impossible, um, still, you know, you take enough propositions together that describe a complete way that everything could go and you have a possible world. So, so anybody who works on modality at all ends up with possible worlds. Yeah. And then they have to explain what they are Um, or they have an explanation. You know, there's, they're an abstract thing that they ended up with because they, they think modalities, um, uh, you know, necessity and possibility. These are uh, properties that, um, uh, propositions uh, yeah. possess um what lewis offers us is um a way to use possible worlds to uh reduce modal notions so that they just essentially go away you know you can replace uh talk about necessity and possibility with just talk about what there is yeah and uh um and it's it's a lovely it's a lovely view. And, yeah. Uh, uh, but um, but he treats these possible worlds in, in order for it to work. He treats these possible worlds as uh, concrete places that we can't get to. Yeah. Well, I think that's really interesting too. the the way you um, explain that it, it's, it's, it's a bit inescapable to um, to use possible world language and semantics because. If we're saying, "Hey, look, uh, is it is it necessary? Do it, does Parker have to have a mustache?" Well, no, he doesn't have to. Well, how do you know that? Well, because you can imagine 
this exact scenario uh ex- with without uh, parker having a mustache you know um ceteris paribus or ceteris paribus everything else is the same except for the mustache well you know if that's one proposition or two propositions those encompass an entire possible world which is not the one that we live in now and so lewis is just saying that that place exists all i'm all i'm saying is that place exists um and and many many more of them yeah, yeah. That's super interesting. Well, so so you got more into Lewis and you started to appreciate uh, um, his possible worlds uh, type stuff, his modal realism. Um, but the the kind of popular picture is that Lewis had you know some uh, some friction with with Christian philosophers, um, and I imagine that's probably you. Like there, you you were a Christian philosopher. You were uh, you were in that time zone. Um, it doesn't seem like you were uh, you were having any friction with him. Yeah. Well, so it's I never heard anyone uh, ever suggest that uh, Lewis had any um, animosity towards Christian philosophers hmm. my entire life. Okay. Wow. <laughs> until until Barry's podcast. Okay. So I don't I don't think that there is. A, uh, I don't. I don't think he had a reputation for that among okay. people who people who knew him. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, you know, really, if anything, quite the opposite. It's it's. Um, huh. So I I did get to be become friends with with him and with Steffi and with David Armstrong and uh, oh, cool. Jenny uh, Armstrong and um, uh, you know one thing that Steffi said to me sh- shortly after he he passed away. Um, she invited me to, to be one of the eulogists at wow. his uh, memorial service, which is an extremely, I mean, a huge honor. Yeah. Um, and, but also uh, so difficult because, um, you know, everybody knew and loved him yeah. and, uh, uh, and it was such a tragedy. Um, yeah. So it was, it was, um, it was very difficult to do. But one of the things she said to me when she, we were talking about what I would say and so on was, you know, isn't it remarkable that although she and David had really, you know, as she put it, not a religious bone in our bodies, mm-hmm. we have so many friends uh, and so many of David's friends were, uh, you know, really quite religious mm. Um and, um, you know, I think among his closer friends, among their closer friends in philosophy were Phil Quinn uh, in particular. Um, um, they were very close to Phil. Um, and when Phil became ill, Steffi went uh, to uh, South Bend to, hmm. uh, to be with him, wow. um, as did Eleanor Stump, um, uh, a really... Uh, interesting pair of angels. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Seriously. Wa- wow. Watch, watching over Phil. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, you know, he and Bob Adams were, you know, were friendly forever. He and Al Plantinga were. I don't know, think that they were ever friends, but they okay. were. They liked one another. They were cordial. Huh. You know, they they exchanged a lot of letters back and forth. I mean, David was a difficult person to you know, to get to know. Okay. Um, he was extremely slow to speak. Um, he disliked, 
uh, small talk intensely. He really couldn't <laughs> couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, so it was, you know, there were always long, awkward pauses. Mm. And so if you were just an acquaintance like Al, um, um, you just you interacted with him, you know, at conferences and so on. And you wrote letters back and forth. But, uh, you know, you didn't hang out. Right. Um, and. Um, um, uh, but but they had very friendly uh, exchanges. Keith DeRose as well. Mm. Um, there's going to be a book of um, uh, his correspondence on philosophy of religion. Oh, awesome. Um, and Anthony Fisher is, is preparing that. And he and Steffi were um, working on it together. Okay. Uh, before she passed away. Um, but anyway, getting back to like the long list. Um, um, Peter Van Inwagen, David Lewis and Peter Van Inwagen were a sort of mutual admiration society. Huh. They, they really liked one another a lot. Wow. Um, uh, so, so I would never have said that there was any, you know, also younger people. So, um, you know, I think our relationship started off a little, you know, a little prickly because I, I sent him a paper that was very critical of his argument from temporary intrinsics. Okay. Um, and uh, he really, he really didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was proposing to publish it in this uh, metaphysics book that Peter, uh, Peter and I put together. And uh, you know, he sent me a long letter, you know, criticizing it. And I, you know, I made some changes, but I still thought, that's a terrible argument, you yeah. know? Uh, and, uh, um, and in, you know, one of these letters, he, he's the first letter to me about the paper. He said, um, of course, whether you publish it or not is your business, but um, can I ask that you show it to Peter <laughs> and, you know, show, show this correspondence to Peter or something like that. So, you know, he really uh, did not like that paper. I thought, you know, it was successful and um, it's been anthologized a couple of times. Okay. Um, I, I think most people think, yeah, that's not a very good argument yeah. <laughs> for, for temporal parts. Um, uh, but our, our then, you know, we became really friendly um, uh, as he visited Notre Dame a couple of times. And then um, he. um, um He and David Armstrong. Uh, for several years, uh, uh, spent uh, a weekend at Franklin and Marshall, where David Armstrong would would spend a semester. Okay. And David David Lewis and Steffi would come down, and and uh, David and Steffi and David and Jenny would um, uh, get to hang out, and they were very friendly with uh, Michael Murray and hmm. other philosophers at. Um, at uh, Franklin and Marshall. So I started getting invited to that and I did about three of those um, uh, and including one after David Lewis passed away, but two while he was still part of that. And, and David was very friendly with, you know, uh, Michael Murray, another Christian philosopher, yeah. um, uh, Trenton Merrick's, um I'm trying to think who else was at these um there was an unusual number of 
Christian philosophers at these events because, huh. you know, Michael Murray was, I think, the one. Maybe Bruce Russell as well. We're putting putting it together. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, uh, so I got to know him better, uh, and and uh, and and these contexts were really, uh, you know, uh, nice ones in which to um, to get to know him and Steffi because it was a comfortable sort of setting. A lot of yeah. people, they all, all these people knew one another, uh, liked one another. And, uh, uh, as long as Steffi was around, she could kind of help carry the burden of the conversation ah, and, uh, yeah. and he could just relax and, and have a beer and sing an Australian, uh, drinking song occasionally. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did get to hear a couple of those, which were amazing. That's um, awesome. Uh, but then he started coming to the metaphysical mayhem uh, at Notre Dame in, I think it was 99 was the first one he came to. So I think he came in 99, 2000, 2001. Um, and those are great. Those were great events. They, they were, um, um, you know, like five days, um, lots of parties. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, the principal, people who came to that included again a lot of christian philosophers yeah sure a lot of people from notre dame, notre dame. Mm -hmm. um so um so yeah the idea that he had a kind of deep-seated animosity or grudge or something yeah um i i think one of the reasons one of the things that was pointed out in the podcast was that there was a lot of of um um you know, controversy involving planting a, uh, you know, attacking some view of, of, of David's yeah. vice versa um, or debates between him and, uh, and Christian philosophers. This, this, you know, this isn't surprising at all. I mean, everybody attacked his views you know? <laughs> um, yeah. and it, it's just what you do. Sure. And, and uh, there was a surprising number of, um, of Christian philosophers in metaphysics, yeah, uh, in in his generation uh, and subsequent ones too. So so it's it's natural that you know these uh, there'd be a great deal of of uh, controversy between David Lewis and the Christians, just like there would be a lot of controversy between uh, David Lewis and the non-Christian metaphysicians. You right. know, I mean, if, you, if you're a metaphysician or a philosopher of mind or philosopher of language or uh, whatever, you're going to have, uh, you're going to be, you're going to find yourself involved in debates with David Lewis because he touched all these areas and, and epistemology too. Yeah. Uh, he, he gave his elusive knowledge paper at, at Notre Dame while I was there. Um, so, I mean, he, he, of course, contributed to so many fields anyway. Yeah. Just, a, just, a, uh, yeah. Like le legendary, the, the amount of fingers in, in different pies he had, I think of, um, I always think of him and Chisholm as kind of like polar opposite type figures, where they're both working in so many different fields, but they just take different, just different starting points. And, and Lewis is kind of out yeah. there and Chisholm seems super grounded. And maybe that's because I agree with most of his positions or whatever, but, <laughs> but was there, was there much of a, a dust up between Chisholm and Lewis? No, um, I think you know Lewis was a was kind of the next generation. Okay, uh, Chisholm was more 
you know, like uh, Chisholm was in grad school at, at Harvard when Quine uh, came out of grad school and started there as okay. a, as a assistant professor. I yeah. think, I think maybe one of them might have rented a house from the other or apartment from the other or something. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they were, you know, it was, they were, uh, but Quine was, I think a little older. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, Lewis was, how old was he when he died? 60. It's, it's, it's so sad. Mm-hmm. How old was he? 62, maybe? Something like that. Yeah, I remember him being a, a young man in, in philosopher uh, yeah. land. Like, yeah. just, just kind of in prime, seems like, yeah. And, and you know, as far as his work goes, too, he was still in his prime. Right. You know, Chisholm, when he died, he was close to 90, I think. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. He was in his 80s, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. Um, so next, 20, next generation. You know, 20 plus years ahead. Yeah. Um, but... Um, but also, you know, their approaches to metaphysics were very different, right. and um, um, and and Chisholm was not um, he was not a super technical philosopher. I mean, he was very careful in his definitions and so on, but um, uh, but he was not interacting with philosophy of language in the, oh, in, the okay. in the way that that not in the same way that lewis was okay. so lewis was willing to kind of really get in there with linguists people doing semantics yeah um and and chisholm was certainly interested in language and how does language hook up with the world but he didn't you know he didn't um um he didn't have a philosophy of language in the same way that David Lewis did. Okay. Okay. Well, um, so, and, so- and, and I, and I think Lewis early on was well known for technical work in, in, you know, modal logic okay. and, and um, uh, um, semantics for uh, conditionals yeah. and, and counterfactuals. Um, and, you know, Chisholm had a, an important paper on, on counterfactuals and laws of nature early on, but you know, it was, it was an earlier time. And, okay. uh, and, uh, you know, it was later that Lewis kind of exploded on the scene and he was exploding in areas that Chisholm really didn't work in. Okay. And so it was kind of only uh, later that you could sort of look at their metaphysical systems and compare. Oh them. yeah. Now, now you can look back and compare, you know, their philosophy of mind or something like that, but, but it didn't quite work out. Yeah, it just didn't happen that they yeah. that they interacted much. Okay, well, so um, if you if you listen to this podcast and you hear the story of uh, Lewis and and you becoming friends with them um, and Lewis's interaction with other Christian philosophers, you you'd get a different feel than if you only read uh, this paper by David Lewis called "Divine Evil," which is kind of by him, kind of not. It seems like it seems like uh, maybe maybe Philip Kitcher turned an outline. Of Lewis's into a paper, maybe, but there's this paper on divine evil, and it's it. Uh, I took it to be just the, this this argument um, from hell, saying that you know if God were to, <laughs> that, you could interpret that in two ways: an argument from hell. Oh, that's the argument from hell. The worst I've ever encountered <laughs> from hell. Yeah. Well, the the fact that that God would send people to uh, eternal torment. Um, 
but but then there's this so that's that's one point you might go okay well the poly, now it's the apologist's turn to respond but he's got the second part where it's like should we admire believers and it seems like he's saying no we shouldn't you know you could look at a, a believer a christian believer who's actually following the tenets of christ and say oh he's a pretty good man but he's saying look if you in the paper it's like you wouldn't say that about a nazi if he's following hitler he he's a bad person for how, for following hitler and so if god is perpetrating divine evil then the person who's following that god is likewise not admirable um and so if you if you just read this this paper you'd be like yeah lewis doesn't like christians um, yeah. wh- what's the deal here yeah you you would you would be forgiven for getting that uh impression yeah. um so you know so the, the the way the argument goes uh is um uh you know first of all uh he says and this is not an implausible thing to say mm-hmm. that um a God who would condemn uh, people to an eternity of punishment um, for at worst a finite amount of sinning um, uh, would be, uh, you know, worse than Hitler. I mean, that is not an implausible thing to say. Um, And, uh, um, and, and Lewis felt that if somebody really believes that that's how God operates, um, uh, then they are essentially uh, a devil worshiper. Yeah. Um, and this, this being can be ever so great in ever so many other ways, but if that's how God operates, it's, it's, it's abominable. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think it is, you know, I think Christians who believe in hell need to think really hard and seriously about that. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, uh, because it it does it does seem, uh, you know, crazy to me. You know, hmm. when I think about it, and 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 the way Lewis responded to it, I I I bumped into something. Uh, let's see if I can find it on my computer here. Mm-hmm. I bumped into something by um, um, George MacDonald on penal substitution. Hmm. And uh, so David Lewis also wrote a little bit on penal substitution. He corresponded with Phil Quinn about it. And um, uh, he, um, um, you know, he pointed out that, you know, although penal substitution seems just like really wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, nevertheless, it also seems like we all kind of believe in it too, in some cases, when we allow somebody else like to pay my fine. Yeah. For me. Mm. Um, and which, which was an interesting uh, point, not, a, not one of his bigger papers, but you know, he was interested in the doctrine. Huh. Um, but anyway, George McDonald says, they say first God must punish the sinner for justice requires it. Then they say he does not punish the sinner, but punishes a perfectly righteous man instead attributes his righteousness to the sinner. And so continues just Hmm. was there ever such a confusion, such an inversion of right and wrong. 
just justice could not treat a righteous man as an unrighteous. Neither, if justice required the punishment of sin, could justice let the sinner go unpunished. To lay the pain upon the righteous in the name of justice is simply monstrous. No wonder unbelief is rampant. Hmm. Believe, believe in Moloch, if you will, but call him Moloch, not justice. Hmm. Um, so, so McDonald has the idea that the doctrine of penal substitution is so is so contrary to uh, uh, righteousness that to attribute it to God and then tell people they've got to believe it um, uh, is like asking them to worship Moloch. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they're devil worshipers, he says. And and uh, uh, Lewis had the same idea about about hell. And George MacDonald, of course, would have would have agreed with him completely hmm. on that. Was he um, a universalist, MacDonald? Yes, yeah, okay. he was. He was. Um, and and I and I'm sure he would have he would have said this. I'm sure somewhere he does say the same kind of kind of thing um, that it's a doctrine that's. Uh, uh, that you know that's um, uh, a horrible thing to uh, to promulgate. Now the fact is, though, that you know it's been central to Christianity, um, uh, you know, since day one, essentially. Right. Uh, um, and uh, and it's tough to understand the you know it's it's hard to it's it. Universalism has its uh, is defensible, I think, biblically, um, but there are extremely difficult um, uh, parables of Christ. Yeah, uh, and um, and I think they do pose a problem uh, for the goodness of God, even if they're um, uh, they're to be explained away. In yeah. some way, because, um, you know, lots and lots of people have felt required to believe um, uh, that God operates uh, on a, a very bizarre and seemingly um, uh, unjust kind of you know, unjust sort of way. Yeah. Um, so that's the that's the big you know, the, 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 the first point in the paper. And yeah. then this last point, which you mentioned is, um, uh, that, um, to admire a devil worshiper yeah. is problematic. And so, uh, how can, you know, how is it that I can admire people who clear headedly believe this sort of thing? Right. Um, and uh, doesn't that doesn't it sort of spread the stain <laughs> hmm. uh, to me? Um, and um, and there there there's a way of reading that part of the paper as as real as as though he's seriously grappling with this. You know, how do I admire these people when they believe this awful thing? And I'm not sure that I can. Right. Um, and, and many of whom like and that would have you in mind, like you would be one yeah, of the targets because yeah, you're I his would, friend. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, uh, but but for, well, for one thing, the, the paper doesn't read quite like that. Mm-hmm. So here's the actual paper. Here's the it's it's just it's just three pages of, of notes. Here. Oh, OK. Um, 
and uh, it has been published somewhere now. Unfortunately, I cannot remember uh, where that is. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Anthony Fisher told me, but okay, I forgot. The, um, the internet hive mind will find it. No, no doubt. They'll find That's, it. They someone put it, it. Put it in the comments if you guys find it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, he, we, we know from uh, correspondence that he had. Um, that he sent it to um, Kitcher and mm-hmm. Philip Kitcher, who then uh, after his, after Lewis's death uh, wrote up the essay that was published. Yeah. Um, and uh, he also sent it to Mark Johnston. Hmm. And um, I asked Mark about this and he said, um, he said, Oh, you mean that shameful paper in which, it seems like he uh, says Bob Adams is a devil worshiper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That one. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, that one. And he said, yes, I talked with him about it and I convinced him not to publish it. Uh. Um, now, you know, apparently, you know, either David uh, changed his mind or never told Steffi about that conversation. Sure. Um, um, but that's how Mark remembered it. Okay. Anyway, um, um, but it was something he was thinking of publishing. Okay. And after his death, uh, uh, Steffi and and uh, Philip Kitcher were going through papers and finding, you know, things that might uh, outlines uh, things that might be publishable, um, and uh, and and Philip then filled it out. And in, there's a footnote to that paper where Philip yeah, I saw says, that at the end. You know, yeah. I I tried to use words from from this outline, but you know, there's that's that's a really long essay compared to this outline. So okay. it, you know, it's really it's mostly Philip and uh, and things that he you know he he says he had two conversations with David about it. Okay, so. But anyway, when you get to that part, so I, I don't want to underplay how in, how seriously David thought the problem of divine evil uh, uh, marred Christianity. Yeah, you know. So I think he he thought that people who believed in a in a literal hell or something as bad as a literal hell that goes on and on forever, um, and then worshipped the being that sent people there yeah. um, uh, were, uh, you know, were uh, in some sense, devil worshipers. Hmm. Um, um, but uh, what's, what's, what, you, what isn't so clear from, from the essay is um, how he thought this affected his attitudes towards other you know towards christians sure um um so for for one thing um uh you know he um looking for this note here so for, for one thing he he did you know he was aware that most of the philosophers that he knew who were christians did not believe in the sort of uh, the sort of of hell that was most problematic. Okay. So, so this this was a letter to Jonathan Bennett, 
around this uh, in in, in uh, October of 2001. He said, I've become increasingly surprised that philosophers pay so much attention to the evils that God declines to prevent. So in other words, the normal problem of evil. Right. But ignore the evils God himself allegedly perpetrates. Of course, few, if any, members of the Society of Christian Philosophers believe that God punishes insubordination with eternal torment. But very many of our neighbors do believe it. And very many admired historical figures did, too. I reckon they're all devil worshipers, like neo-Nazis who adore Hitler, only worse. So he thinks it's a huge, serious problem. Yeah. He doesn't think it infects his relationships with uh, Christians in the Society of Christian Philosophers because he rightly or wrongly (laughs) thinks that, uh, 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 no, I I think, I think rightly, you know, uh, uh, thinks that most of them don't. believe in an uh, uh, infinitely bad uh, punishment. Yeah. A punishment of infinite awfulness um, uh, for um, some people. Yeah. Um, I, w- so, I wonder. So, so that's, so that's yeah. one thing, uh, yeah. you know, so, uh, but, but a, a, another thing is that the actual content, which I'll talk about in a second of his yeah. outline is a bit different, I think. The, okay. Uh, the final version. Okay. Okay. I I uh, I wondered about that uh, finite crimes and uh, eternal punishment bit. Yeah. Um. I wonder if there's anything to the response that like, it it. Well, you could go with C.S. Lewis and say you've you've never met a mere mortal. Um. So these these finite crimes are against infinite beings, and so it it might warrant infinite punishment. I don't know. It's kind of that's kind of muddled. It's a little bit vague to to draw out why a finite crime against an immortal being would warrant eternal punishment. But if you, if again, like likewise, people will point that to God and say, look, every, uh, every sin is ultimately against God. Uh, you see that in the Bible, David says against you and in you alone, if I sinned, even though he had, uh, you know, took advantage of Bathsheba and had her husband killed and, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff, lied about it. Um, but God's this eternal being or uh, everlasting being, depending on, on your doctrine of God. And so if, if, if you're sinning against an eternal God, then perhaps the punishment is justly eternal and the payment for it could either be an eternal punishment or a finite uh, punishment against an eternal being like, like the son of God or something. Is there anything there or is that just kind of grasping at, at straws? Um, I mean, certainly God's way different from us. Our obligations to God um, are, are, are different than our obligations to one another. Mm-hmm. I can see thinking that they must be um, um, deeper and more profound Okay. You know, it's, it's something like the way, um, y- you know, if I'm, if I'm rude, um, to, um, a stranger, um, that's one thing. If I'm rude to my wife uh, or my father or something like that, that's something else. Right. You know, it's right. worse. Um, um, I owe them so much, and then I treat them like that. 
you know mm, right. um so so i i can see thinking that there's something um far worse about um uh offending against you know an offense against god but um I don't see how it is that um, uh, an offense against God in this life, um, you know, calling God a bad name or mm. knowing that he wants me to do something and not doing it or, uh, or, def- you know, shaking my fist at God even. Um, yeah. High handed. Yeah. How, how, you know, why it is that God's being eternal would turn that into an offense that uh, requires an infinite amount of torture. Hmm. Um, I'm just not really seeing it. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, um, I mean, I know that there's theology out there that explains this uh, <laughs> right, right. in the, in the, in the vicinity of, of uh, you know, what, what you're pointing to. I've, I've encountered it. Yeah. I kind of, you know, I didn't get it, uh, sure. you know, um, um, and, but I realized that I'm, I'm not a theologian, mm. and especially here. It's not, um, I have not encountered serious, deep attempts to, justify the idea that we manage to uh, incur a kind of um, um, eternal debt or something. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, so there's, you know, most people writing about hell um, that I've encountered anyway, um, seem to take it that we, you know, we've got to find a way of explaining this that doesn't require that, you know? Yeah. So, so uh, in the CS Lewis picture where, you know, the doors are closed from the inside. inside, The the idea there is um, uh, this could only go on and on if it even is allowed to go on and on, because that's not totally clear from Lewis's kind of metaphor. Yeah. Someone pops out of existence. Right. Yeah. um, uh, If it's allowed to go on and on, that's because, um, it, it's, it's, um, willfully being chosen. Right. Um, and, uh, so that, you know, that, that, um, doesn't depend upon, a uh, uh, having done something that merits, uh, l- you know, an extreme length of, <laughs> of horrible punishment. Right. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's really good. So, so folks listening, if if um, if you take that seriously, that that what, the the view that I brought up, then uh, write it up. Let's see it. Yeah, let's uh, let's do do some more work on it and, and make it uh, uh, at least um, uh, at least write it up. I guess that's that's what I'm what I'm saying. Um, I mean, I well, think you know, places to look for discussion of this um, would be Jerry Wall's mm-hmm. uh, book on hell. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, he's got he's got several books now, um, yeah, that including Purgatory and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the 
we've got we've got this here hell the logic of damnation nice um, so um but uh anyway where were yeah. we going with this yeah well maybe maybe i'll uh maybe i'll get jerry to to come on yeah. that'd, be, that'd be a fun one too um well so so um I wanted to, uh, if we if we got a little bit more time for oh, me here, Dean. Um, actually, we, we should probably just do the thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that Lewis actually says. Oh right, you said you said about the content. The content yeah. of the actual outline might yeah. be a little bit different. So what he actually says is, um, um, are those who worship the perpetrator of divine evil? So so people who really think this is how this is how this is how God's economy operates. Yeah. He creates these creatures. He gives them a chance to sin or not, to love him or not. And if they don't, he gives them a finite amount of time to do their bad stuff and then punishes them uh, horribly for eternity. Mm-hmm. Okay, So somebody really, really believes that and, and that it's, um, you know, that's that's sort of it's God's right to do that. That's what God wants. That's what God likes. You know, it's, mm. it's his way of operating. Um so he thinks that sort of person is worshiping a being that that does something which they should be able to see is unconscionable, you know. So he says, what about that sort of person? Um, um, a neo-Nazi who w- admires Hitler is evil. Um, okay. You know, not necessarily because he's disposed to emulate Hitler's deeds, yeah. but just because he approves of this. Yeah. Um, and just approving of it makes the person stained in a way. Yeah. So just that pro attitude. Yeah. So then he, he asks, um, well, some worshipers of this kind of God would be obviously evil if they relish contemplating the torment of the damned. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that would be a bad thing. And then he says, others are not obviously evil. And yet they knowingly worship this being, believing the being operates this way. And, and that's, he says, that's bad enough. Now it's not, it's not totally clear what bad enough means, uh, <laughs> how bad that makes them. Right. Um, but, but I think he thinks it does make them uh, to some extent uh, bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then he says, what of those who admire worshipers of the perpetrator? Say by admiring some of our neighbors or by admiring famous saints or heroes or scholars, Mother Teresa, Father Murphy, or Buridan. So he now he's wondering, oh, wait a minute. Um, so some of these people do, you know, so our neighbors, maybe not members of the Society of Christian Philosophers or not mm-hmm. many of them, he says in that letter, yeah. but some people that I admire, like Mother Teresa, yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and then he, some then of the, he asks, and what of those who admire them? Right. Yeah, the stain <laughs> could go out another level. It keeps yeah. going, right? If yeah. admiration transmits evil, so does ancestral admiration. Mm-hmm. Chains of contagion can be of arbitrary length. Getting hooked up to one is well nigh unavoidable. Okay, so. Um, uh, it's not going to go away, he says. Um, even if someday there are no more worshipers of the perpetrator or any who remember those worshipers or any who remember them, 
you're still going to get hooked up to a chain okay. that goes back. Wow. And uh, so unless he says you are an utter misanthrope, <laughs> you're going to be connected by one of these chains. Yeah. Now, then he says, this is getting ridiculous, not to mention depressing. <laughs> and cl clearly it is ridiculous. I mean, it's right. ridiculous to think that, let, let's say, a thousand years from now, after, uh, you know, let's suppose belief in a God like that has completely gone away. Uh -huh. Nobody even remembers it. <laughs> but still, people admire people who admired people who admired Augustine. Right. You know, and, and so if we're really going to think that it, it spreads like that, that's 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 crazy. Yeah. Right? So he says this is getting ridiculous. How can it be morally permissible to be tolerant and jovial with hmm. with your neighbors who actually do believe in this kind of of uh, God? As of course it is. So that that's the next one. As of course it is. Yeah. As of course it is. Yeah. Um, uh, what saves us from chains of contagion? Well, he's got some some things that would do that. So admiration tr transmits evil only if it is well-informed. So, you know, if you don't know that somebody uh, thought of God in this way, uh, yeah. uh, you know. Don't ask them about their uh, beliefs yeah. on hell, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, only if it's unconfused and free of double think, which it almost never is. Okay. Uh, he didn't say almost never is, but, um, some cognitive dissonance going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if it's unselective as opposed to admiring one aspect, but not another. So you can admire somebody for, you can admire uh, mother Teresa for all sorts of things, but not, you might, you don't admire her for, her willingness to accept this doctrine of hell, let's say. Sure. And of course, sure. who knows what Mother Teresa really thought about hell. You right, know, right, uh, right, right. There'd be a lot of options open for a, a Catholic of even of her generation, although, you know, that's a while ago still. Um, sure. Uh, so, uh, so those are all things that break the chains. If these conditions fail at any step, the chain is broken, and probably they mostly do. Hmm. That, okay. That's the end of the thing. But, it, you know, so it's a very different now, it, you know, Kitcher is making points that he makes that, that David Lewis makes. But yeah. the, the flavor of it is very different. Um, and um, and, the you know, how can we remain tolerant and jovial as, of course, we should yeah, um, that, yeah. you know, you don't get that at all from uh, from the Kitcher uh, version. Right. Um, so I thought I'd get that out there. I also yeah. have a, a little a little thing that uh, uh, Steffi wrote for a workshop that she did uh, a couple of years after David's death, where she talked about David Lewis and his correspondence with Christian philosophers. Okay, um, awesome. but I, I I don't need to read that. It's not it's not terribly, uh, you know, it's not terribly deep. But it, it does talk about how, uh, you know, how he had many uh, philosophical friends you know bob adams and yeah and she includes planting and, and keith DeRose and uh phil quinn and so on uh yeah. bruce langtree in australia um oh it's good it's good they got a, an australian in there because i know yeah his affinity for uh australia yeah, he was a big fan of australians 
Yeah, that's awesome. Well, uh, uh, Dean, I thought maybe we could finish up just uh, briefly with uh, motor realism and theism because that that's something that um, I've, I've talked about on the podcast before. Um, just uh, initially, I, I don't know if this is if this has happened, um, but you know, looking at at Plantinga's modal ontological argument, he's saying God is a uh, a necessary being. Uh, he doesn't use that language, but uh, close. If if God's this necessary being, and you allow him to exist in, in in any possible world, then he necessarily exists in every possible world. And if you let him in once, he gets in everywhere. Yeah. Um, and I wondered about you know Lewis's view, like because he he holds um in in his modal realism, I think he said in places that look, uh, yeah, there's there's different possible worlds that are actual different concrete worlds where uh eastern religions are true where christianity is true it just doesn't happen to be this one that you know our index calls are latched onto or whatever but if that's the case then there is a possible world where planning is god who is necessarily existent exists which seems like it then would spread out to all of them uh, did did lewis and planning a talk about this or I do not know that they did. Mm. I would think they might have. So there's there's correspondence. There there will be correspondence in this book. Yeah. Um, between Plantinga and um, David and and um, Steffi shared some of it at the um, at that workshop. Okay. I guess it was the first David Lewis lecture. Yeah, uh, that they had, and then and she did this thing, um, and Cornell West was there, and it huh. was uh, it was a big moment for me because um, uh, uh, Cornell. It was a small room; it was like a little seminar room, and um, and uh, he s- said something about, you know, um, we Christians like like Dean and me, and I didn't even know he knew. <laughs> my name or who you know like knew me from adam yeah right so, like that was a big moment wow that's pretty cool cornell cornell west knows my name <laughs> it, it was a it was a sweet uh sweet moment yeah anyway um she read out a letter from plantinga or a letter to Pl- plantinga and from plantinga but it was all about free will free will okay. theodicy that okay sort of stuff. yeah so i i don't know um i you know i think um I, I, after listening to the podcast, uh, you know, Barry's podcast, um, he had, you know, he asked Megan Sullivan, she's, she was one of my PhD students. Actually. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, uh, he asked her, you know, now of course, super distinguished, uh, philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that m- Christians had, trouble with his metaphysics because modal realism was so um incompatible with uh theism yeah and uh uh and she you know talked about it a little bit and kind of said yeah you know i kind of uh, i you know but it sounded to me like she was struggling a bit to see okay. what was really wrong here and and yeah. um uh, listening to that made me want to look into the literature on it, which I did a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, um, 
and there is some now. You know, there's a kind of growing literature. It looks like. Yeah. Um, and you you had somebody on your podcast talking about. Yeah, Joshua uh, Sidjuare. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome uh, guy. Yeah, that was. Uh, so I, I I read his paper and oh, cool. then stuff by Ross Cameron. Yeah. And uh, and I guess Sheehy. Is I'm not sure. The, is a is a guy who's criticized it. Oh, cool. So okay. he says it won't work. Okay. Uh, or Sheehy. S h e e h y. Okay. Um, uh, in religious studies, I think. Hmm. Um, but um, yeah. So you you might think you couldn't run the planting a sort of argument Mm -hmm. um, in Lewis's setup, um, because. Or, or if you did, you'd get really crazy results. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah. so it, you know, the the official story is um, when you're asking um, about something's, uh, you know, uh, possible or necessary properties, you look at its counterparts in other possible worlds. Yeah. So the natural way to read the the Plantinga argument is like this: possibly. Uh, there's uh, a necessarily existing perfectly good being, yeah, with all with you know omnipotence and omniscience essentially as well. That means there's some possible world where there's a a being who's like that, yeah, and there's a counterpart of that being in every other possible world. So um, it's still a valid argument. You know, yeah. it, it, I mean, it's a it's, it's a valid argument of of uh, S5 modal logic. Yeah. Um, probably weaker systems than S5. It's about. Well, which uh, which I took. I think Lewis Lewis has a, a contrary system, right? He doesn't hold S5 from what I remember. Um, Let's see. Shoot. I should know this. Sorry to pop that in on yeah, you because I, yeah. I, I, I hardly know. But yeah. Um. Well, I guess because of counterpart theory, it's probably. That would make sense. Yeah, I should I should be able to just reply to that, but um, no, no worries. I I, I come up with yeah. some, some random ones. No, no, no. That's more. that's. Uh... I hadn't considered the counterpart thing before because because um, if we ran yeah. Plantinga's model, we'd have to say, well, like I have like the god in this universe is different than the god in the even the closest possible world. Because counterparts aren't identical; they're they're counterparts. So it would be like a counterpart god. So like, that is kind of a weird a weird take. Yeah. Um, so you know, it looks like you've got all these gods. That, yeah. So there's there's this funny thing about about Lewis's reduction. Um, it's very hard to. Um, it's it's very hard there, there, there's difficulties if you want to use modal talk again uh, while you're talking about possible worlds because it's already been reduced because it's already it's already been reduced and you get some bad you get some bad consequences interesting um, yeah so uh so for instance if you're let's say we're talking the language of possible worlds mm-hmm. in which we've used to reduce boxes and diamonds and counterfactuals and so on. Um, then we can say things like that are just flat out true. Like um, 
you know, there are disconnected space times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, normally, if anything's true, um, it's possibly true. So you ought to be able to say, so possibly there are disconnected space times. Right. Um, but that's that's not true in Lewis's setup. Right, because it'd be like a meta a meta uh, modal fact above all what's been reduced. It's you know what's possibly true is supposed to be what's true in some possible world or other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in Unless no possible world meta, are there yeah are there these things? So right. that's that's a that's a you know uh, I guess it gets called the pro the puzzle of advanced modalizing or something like that. Okay, and yeah. I think Joseph Melia might be. Uh, maybe he was the first to, to, to bring it up. Um, okay. But a lot of people have been talking about it for a lot of years now, and there's different responses uh, mm. you can give. I mean, one thing to say, uh, Ted Sider likes this kind of response. Don't mix up your languages. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but any, but anyway, um, um where were we going with this? Yeah, well, so um, it, I think it actually opens up uh, something that you you sent me about a simple god, and how oh, a simple uh, god might be able to kind of traverse this uh, difficulty of of counterparts. I yeah. have just this this quote. I think I just pulled it from your Facebook message that you said uh, a simple god that could only have multiple properties in virtue of extrinsic relations yeah. is a good candidate for something that's truly cross world identical. Yeah. So the. Um... So Lewis's, so the, the problem we ran into for, um, uh, you know, for God being necessarily existing in Lewis yeah. scheme was counterpart theory, which yeah. requires individuals, um, anything that, you know, is causing things to happen and has contingent intrinsic properties that mm-hmm. are different in different worlds um, has to be world bound he thinks. Okay. And so you get all these gods in all these different worlds. Um, and that just feels wrong. Like crazy polytheism. Yeah. Um, um, but his reason for thinking that individuals should be world bound, um, really there's two. Um, one of them is, uh, that, um, accidental intrinsic properties will lead to contradiction if you allow for cross-world identity. So huh. if you allow that I'm in this possible world and and I intrinsically am seated, I'm, I'm in a bent position. Oh, I remember this. Yeah. 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 Um, then that's an intrinsic property that I have. And he says, if we can tell anything about intrinsic properties, it's that they're not relations to anything else. Yeah. So it's a property I just have, period. And then he says, if you suppose that the possible world where the possible world that validates the possibility of me standing, yeah, not with, being bent, in which you are standing, yeah, in which I concrete. am standing, yeah, that world is, uh, uh, you know, that's going to lead to a contradiction if it's yeah. really me, because you're bent and straight leg at the same time, bent and straight at the same time. How could that be the same? Well, same time. Yeah, we're actually doing the one for temporary intrinsics, which was the argument yeah. that I criticized in this early paper of mine yeah um and uh, that he sort of replied to but um uh he wants to say the same thing about about worlds um so like take my whole history i have this intrinsic shape you know 
small, bigger, bigger, and then I get stooped and then I, I'm done. Okay. That with the whole, different haircuts as well. That, that's with important. different haircuts. Right. Yeah. All of this is, he thinks because shape is intrinsic, all of this is intrinsic to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Now, if you say that I existed in another possible world and um, uh, had a different shape over my whole career, um, that would be a contradiction because you've said I'm intrinsically one way and I'm intrinsically a contradictory way. Yeah. Now, the obvious thing to say both to the temporary case and to the world case um, is that these are relative properties. Mm-hmm. So relative to this space-time manifold, I have such and such a shape. Relative to that disconnected space-time manifold, I have this other shape. Yeah. What's wrong with that? Now, Lewis's response is, I can just see that shape is an intrinsic property. Huh. Um, but a lot of us think, well, I, I, I don't just see that. Um, couldn't shape be uh, a relation between you and a region? You know? Yeah. You have the, the shape that you have in virtue of your relationship to that region. Right. Um, um, if that's so, then, you know, identity across possible worlds is unproblematic. The other reason he he likes counterpart theory uh, and, uh, uh, and the use of things that are not strictly identical to me mm-hmm. um, to make sense of of de re modality is just that it allows this kind of flexibility we were talking about early on where you can say well if you think of dean as an organism he couldn't survive teletransportation but if you're thinking of him as a psychological being he could and that allows you to be kind of flexible about that yeah um but a lot of people think no essences shouldn't be like that i mean there should be just a fact of the matter about whether i could survive teletransportation or not you know, right. um, so if that's if you don't accept the his his argument from accidental intrinsics mm-hmm. and you don't like this flexibility, then cross world identity, uh, trans world identity is uh, uh, makes good sense for everything, okay. you know, for yeah. all sorts of things um, and certainly for for God. Hmm. And and that's the way Ross uh, Cameron uh defends uh modal realism he says and and he makes the point that all of all of god's intrinsic uh all of god's essential properties could be intrinsic Hmm. um and um now now you you might think okay but uh you know what about you know in this world god believes that dean has short hair on such and such a date yeah. And uh, in this other world, I don't have short hair on that date. So God believes that Dean doesn't have short hair on that date. Um, um, you know, doesn't that, isn't that, inco- aren't those incompatible beliefs then? Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you could say, well, the belief is a belief about, um, uh, Dean and Dean's relationship to this world, uh-huh. you know. Um, so it's not oh, just the yeah. flat out. It's not just the flat out belief that Dean is uh, has long hair on such and such a date. It's Dean has long hair on such such and such a date in such and such world. Right, right. And you could still be a counterpart. You could still have two Dean counterparts, even if 
God's not a counterpart. God doesn't have counterparts. Well, that that's true. We could uh, we we could be modal realists and use counterpart theory for individuals. Yeah, uh, individuals are world bound except for God. Right. Um, and you might think, well, God's really special, um, so God can do that. I mean, Lewis was open to the idea of some special things. Okay. Too, <laughs> like nice. um, he he never he never fully um decided one way or the other on uh david armstrong's kind of universals oh okay but he always left the door open for them yeah and uh they are spatially located wherever their instances are Mm -hmm. and they're certainly causally important you know they they um uh you know it's it's mass and charge that are responsible for things like gravitation and and uh, electromagnetism yeah. yeah, and it's the charge of this uh, electron that's uh, uh, that's repelling that other electron. In mm-hmm. virtue of what? Well, in virtue of the universal, which is present in both those places. So, so he, you know, he left it open that there could be um, uh, some things that were cross-world um, identical. Yeah, um, and even you know. Maybe in the case of, of these universals, they're they're causally significant and in space, um, space time. Yeah. So, um, well, so a simple God. This is this is interesting. Really, like a simple God um, would um, only have multiple properties in virtue of extrinsic relations. So he could be related uh, to the pluriverse and in, in, in different ways uh, each, uh, each, you know, the, the, depending on the, the other relata, you know, uh, that relation is going to be different, but it's, yeah. Is that, is that sound right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, w- one thing that's uh, kind of neat and tidy about this view, if you're a classical theist where that means you know, God is simple. Um, God can't change. Yeah. God would have been the same no matter what. Yeah. Impossible. Uh, right. Then you have to make beliefs like, uh, you know, beliefs that seem to be contingent um, aren't really intrinsic to God. Right. Their relations to things out here. And their conceptual um, relations when it comes to him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Their their relations only from the one side. Yeah, I have no idea what that means. But I don't. Way. I don't either. But some of the classical guys. Yeah, yeah, they say that. Yeah. So so if that was your conception, then it would be really easy uh, to to run with this kind of modal realism. Yeah. Because God isn't intrinsically different according to different worlds. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, God just stands in all these. You know, God's God's believing that I will do so and so, or God's knowing that I am such and such. That that isn't intrinsic to God. It's a relationship between God and um, and uh, this fact. Yeah, yeah. Which that, that it's even more fascinating that, that you brought this up because if there, if anyone's a, a neoclassical guy or a, a theistic personalist or whatever you know, want to call it, it, it'd be you. So this is fun that you're. Yeah. You're going with a uh, the, the simple idea. That's really it's well. Really I never said I believe modal. Reasons. No, right, right, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, or if you or this to... 
farthest yeah. kind of view about God. But yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm really interested in exploring, um, you know, divine timelessness yeah. and, and uh, immutability and stuff like that. And simplicity as well. I mean, these are, these are ancient, interesting yeah. philosophical positions and, yeah. Um and many of which I, I believe uh Dr. Lefthow holds. You're you're uh Yeah, no, he's he's he um his god's definitely outside of time. Um I suppose I should ask him about immutability. I should know these things. Well, um, I think he I think he holds uh, simplicity. I, I was uh yeah. God necessity, he's got this interesting view of uh conceptualism uh conceptual nominalism i believe i don't know if he'd call it that but yeah Craig calls it that yeah yeah um yeah. so it's nice to have both of you guys there as, as yeah no, we've got That's really we have cool. very different views and we like to talk about them it's awesome i love it i love that you're yeah. you're interested in the stuff too because uh you know sometimes people think uh this guy or that guy's the boogeyman if you're a if you're a theistic personalist i know that's a weird word but if if that's you then um and, and you might think left is the bad guy and if you're oh. <laughs> uh if you know if you're a classical guy you might think that uh dean zimmerman uh, is the boogeyman but it's really yeah. cool to to think that you're just a curious philosopher who's who's interested in, in checking stuff out and you're a christian so you check out the ancient views as well and you're still still exploring them it's cool yeah, i'm spending a lot of time on timelessness right now okay actually. awesome um, i mean i'm really seriously trying to work out a kind of um a tense logic that will that will be, you know, it'll make the A theory compatible with divine eternity. Okay. And it's extremely hard, but <laughs> Brian wants to do this too. And, uh, uh, so we're kind of, we're both working on it. And, awesome. uh, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's tricky, but I, I also want to make sense of, uh, so if you're, if you're an A theorist, you've got to have, um, uh, you need to treat tense, like a modal operator okay yeah um, especially if you're a presentist because you want to make a big distinction between um you know um it it used to be that 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 there's a dinosaur yep and there's a thing that used to be a dinosaur because you want to say that's false yeah and if you're going to do that you got to think there's a scope distinction okay Uh, there's a big distinction between um uh you know there there's a thing that was a dinosaur where the was is in the scope of the quantifier there is yep. yeah and and the other thing i said yeah um, uh, lest which, you quantify over this dinosaur that's supposed to be back there exactly yeah so so you have to treat uh tense as something that works like an operator so that you can make that kind of distinction okay um but then if, if you want to say that timelessness is kind of another mode of being uh-huh. um, and uh, then that's a good candidate for an operator as well. And then you got to explain how these interact with one another. And then you got to, yeah, say why you're, it's not Minongianism or something. Cause that's like the, that's like a terrible, a terrible thing to be. Yeah, no, don't be, don't be accused of that. <laughs> yeah. Minong too was a great philosopher. Yeah. A, a really great philosopher. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I want to work on this not just because I want to see if Lefthouse's project of making timelessness and presentism compatible, uh-huh. uh, whether that will work. But I also want to work on it because 
I, I want to test out uh, Bill Craig's picture where mm. the past is finite. Presentism is true now. God exists in time now. But God also timelessly yes. existed and created. The, so God doesn't just have a finite past. He, he, that's, right. that's the important thing for him. Right, right. So he wants to introduce a kind of mode of being, uh, timelessness, uh, that you know God can have, as well as the kind of temporal life that God yeah. has now. Yeah, and, and that to make that, sense of that, you got to have a timelessness operator uh, that's uh, that functions like a tense, and that that goes away once God creates time, right? Well, so that's the that's. I mean, one of the things that's that makes the view really hard to understand is that it, it tempts you to say things like, um, you know, God has been in time since the beginning of time. And before that God was timeless, uh, yeah. but God isn't timeless now, right. you know, and that's obviously no good. You can't yeah. say that. Um, right. So you have to say timelessly God exists. Um, isn't coexisting with created stuff, maybe. Mm -hmm. At least God isn't coexisting with a temporally changing order of things. Um, yeah. So that is all timelessly true. And timelessly, God chooses to create a universe. Hmm. Um, so that's all true. But it's not true that uh, now God is creating a universe. Yeah. God did that timelessly. Right. Right. Um, um, God, of course, is sustaining everything and so on. But the decision to create a universe or not, that was made from the from the timeless point of view. Yeah. Um, and so I think the right thing for uh, Craig to say is just that uh, this is, you know, there's all the stuff that's timelessly true. And then there's all the stuff that's now true and that was true and that will be true. And these are just different. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. Well, I look forward to you uh, figuring that out. I'm trying. <laughs> and, I'm working yeah, on it. Yeah. Uh, Dean, man, you, you gave me so much time here. This is this has been fantastic. It's been a really, really fun podcast. Well, I hope uh, you can edit it down. So that yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so that's uh, shorter. And yeah. uh, I'll clip and... out some good stuff, too, and, and, and make some uh, some some clips for uh, people who are just interested in motor realism and all that good stuff. But um, okay. I, I really appreciate um, your work. Uh, I love like we didn't even really get into stuff that you're uh, an expert on but stuff that I actually work on. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, maybe I can coax you in, uh, some other time to come back on and talk about, uh, dualism, fill mind type stuff, or, sure. you know, one of your other interests. Um, but, but for now, folks, that's going to have to do it. Um, I'll put a link to, uh, Dean Zimmerman's uh, website. You can find that in the description. You can find a bunch more of his work there. Uh, but for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God.